I want to just say thank you. So if, if you're a guest with us this morning, this might not make sense, but last Sunday there was kind of a surprise um, anniversary, 10-year um, celebration. So my family and I have been here for 10 years, and um, very kindly and thoughtfully there was a, um, a time of celebrating that anniversary. So um, I just want to say thank you. So it was humbling. It was overwhelming. Um, I am not worthy, but I'm certainly thankful uh, for such a loving and supportive church family as you all are and have been. So it was pretty much a total surprise. I knew somebody else was preaching, and it wasn't Tyler, and that there was probably a lunch. That's about all I knew. Um, somehow, Beth and the kids kept it under wraps. So on Saturday morning, you know, I had like an hour that I could be at the workday before needing to take Johnny to... Um, flag football game, and Beth was glad for a little extra time to clean the house and get it ready, um, but then people who are working here to get things ready for the lunch, you know, start texting her like, what is he doing here? Get him out of here. Um, so anyway, I worked on things on this end of the building with Tom, and yeah, it all worked out. So yeah, real, just a tremendous blessing to have Drew and Christina Hunter here. Isn't he a gifted guy? Uh, thank God for them. Great couple, good friends. Uh, I mean, that's one of the reasons why Tyler and I try to get to a conference each year to reconnect with um, good friends like that. So speaking of friendship, you like that segue? Drew wrote this book, Made for Friendship, and the subtitle is The Relationship That Halves Our Sorrows and Doubles Our Joys. So it comes from a J.C. Ryle quote, the world, this world is full of sorrow because it's full of sin. It is a dark place. It is a lonely place. It is a disappointing place. The brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joys. So Jesus is the greatest friend, and he makes that clear in the book. And I know I was really challenged and encouraged by it. I knew it was going to be good, but I didn't know it was going to be that good. So I encourage you to pick that up and, and check it out. But um, tremendous blessing not just to have Drew and Christina here, but uh, su be, be surprised by my daughter back from college. So great to have her here and my mom and my in-laws. Maybe at least Judy. Glad that she was here. Um, no, I'm kidding. My father-in-law, too. Uh, so all the kind words shared on Sunday morning and the prayers and the lunch and the gifts. And again, I don't deserve it, but I am humbly grateful. Um, so your words and encouragement were deeply appreciated and encouraging. Thank you for everybody who served behind the scenes. Um, thankful for my fellow elders, um, your shepherds who willingly care for and lead this body, um, my band of brothers. Thankful for Greg and Bill and Al and Todd and Tyler and Dwight. Um, we all are blessed to have such sincere and faithful shepherds. Um, and so their kindness and love and, and generous support is also deeply appreciated. So I love you guys. I trust you. Um, and grateful for you all. Our family is grateful for you all. So God's been faithful these past 10 years, and he will be faithful as we head into the years ahead. So let's trust him, church family, brothers and sisters and watch him work. All right, so we are going to finish up our values refresh this morning. We do this about on an annual basis.
um, just making sure that we keep the main thing the main thing. So our values are gospel, community, and mission. It's pretty easy to remember, right? Those are the main things. It all starts with the gospel. That is the, that's everything. We don't have anything without Jesus. And so with Jesus, we have the grace of God, reconciliation with God, peace with God, the love of God, all the promises of God. We have it all. And that love from God then changes our horizontal relationships and draws us together into Christian community. And then it also sends us out to share that love with others. So the last couple weeks, we looked at gospel and community. And this morning, we're looking at mission. So Tyler was scheduled to actually preach on mission, but his maternal grandmother passed away on Tuesday. So he and his family headed out on Thursday um, down to Tennessee, and he had a part um, to play in the, in the funeral service, and they are actually driving back today. So his grandmother, thankfully, was a believer. She was 91 years old, um, so we praise God that she is with her Savior and free from pain and suffering and rejoicing right now, um, but encourage you to pray for Tyler's family and for the Lord to comfort them in that loss. So Tyler and I are reading a book um, called Gospel Fluency, Speaking the Truths of Jesus into the Everyday Stuff of Life. Um, another good book. I'm making all kind of book recommendations this morning. So um, it's by a guy named Jeff Vanderstelt. So chapter 7, he begins by saying that he's often asked why it's so hard for many Christians to talk to people about Jesus. Maybe you feel that way. So in the beginning of the chapter, he says, you know, when I'm asked that, I oftentimes mention spiritual warfare, because certainly Satan doesn't want the good news of Jesus spreading. Also, he mentioned how people feel inadequate and ill-equipped to share the truth. I mean, what if they ask me something I don't know the answer to? They need more training. He also says that he's come to believe that the main reason is not lack of training, but lack of love that our love easily grows cold. And when our love is cold, usually our lips are silent. So we need to be deeply affected by the grace and the love of Jesus on a daily basis. That's why we started with the gospel. That's why it all starts there. So you can see how the first value impacts the other two. Okay, when we are saturated with the grace and love of Jesus, then we will be enabled and empowered to share that love and grace with others. So he goes on in that chapter to say something that totally changed my life about, I don't know how many years ago, 15, 16, 17 years ago. Um, I learned it first from C.S. Lewis, but he says it in this book. We talk about what we love. We praise what we enjoy. You've seen this, right? see it with sports. You see it with food. So here's what he says. Do you know people who love sports? You're probably one of them. You know it if they do. I love the Seahawks. This is not me speaking. This is this guy speaking. He lives in Washington. Seattle's professional football team. So you can just put yourself in there with the Eagles or some other team like the Steelers. Okay. So I love the Seahawks, Seattle's professional football team, and you'd know that if you hung out with me for a few days. Do you know people who love finding a good deal? It's like good deal evangelists out there, good deal missionaries out there. 
I'm sure you hear about it when they do. What about work? People who love their work talk about it a lot. Jesus said that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. What comes out of your mouth displays what is in your heart and what has captured your heart. So do you talk about Jesus? Sorry, I'm still quoting here. Has he captured your heart? Do you love him? The gospel is incredible. The word gospel literally means good news. Is it good news to you? What do you get most excited about? What has most captured your affections? Be honest for a moment. What is it? Who is it? And why has it or he or she captured your heart? And if your affections have been captured, how have you been affected? What do you do in light of your heart being captured? Most importantly, has Jesus captured your affections? Why or why not? Are you impressed with him? It will show. If he has captured your affections, you will not be able to stop talking about him. So we talk about what we love, what we enjoy, right? But here's the thing. Just knowing about that phenomenon doesn't change you, right? In fact, you might just be discouraged right now and feeling guilty. <laughs> like, oh man, what a slug. I've got no joy, no love for Jesus because I haven't been talking about him. So certainly it's helpful to know that phenomenon so that we guard our hearts because it's so easy to just get excited about everything but Jesus, and it can also help us to pursue the right things, right? But just knowing that we do this with our favorite football team or restaurant or vacation spot or TV show doesn't make it happen. You need to go watch a game and enjoy a victory or remember a victory, you know, like Philly Philly. Anybody? Anybody? Okay. Or you need to go and eat at that restaurant again. And then the next time, you're gushing about it, right? Or enjoying that vacation spot or remembering that vacation or watching that show. That's what causes the enjoyment to kind of well up and then spill out in praise when we feed those things. So that's why we start with value number one, the gospel. We need to begin and return to the gospel day after day. We need joy in Jesus. We need to be reminded of how good the good news is. We need to taste and see that the Lord is good. Like the psalmist says, we need to remember and rehearse the victories and the glories of the gospel. So rather than talking about how we need to be, you know, better in sharing our faith, maybe we should enjoy the gospel this morning. And then, by God's grace, it'll well up and we'll have something that we want to share. Does that make sense? So we're going to do that from Luke 15. I don't know about you, but this is just awesome. Such good news in this passage. So we're going to just walk through primarily the parable of the prodigal son, as it's called. Although, really, it's the father who's the real prodigal. You know, prodigal means lavish and reckless and extravagant. So the real prodigal is the father, and there's two lost sons in this passage. So let's look at it here. The joy of the gospel. There's all kinds of joy in this passage. Did you see it? When the sheep is found, 
that shepherd is rejoicing, and he wants other people to rejoice with him. When that coin is found, which would have been like, you know, if we had a $100 coin, you know, a drachma was like a full day's wages, so, you know, that's like blue collar, 100 bucks a day. You could go up from there. So this is valuable. So she's excited when she finds this coin, and she wants her neighbors to be excited with her. And then the third part of this illustration is the lost sons. All right? So if you're not still there, go ahead and turn back to Luke 15, and we're going to walk through this and highlight some things. So we'll begin in verse 11. So Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Okay, here's the problem. This is a familiar passage for many of us. And sometimes with familiar passages, it's really easy to just kind of think we're, we, we know what's going on. We just blow right by it. We need to be shocked in the right places with this passage. So we're going to stop and kind of hit some things that we might not think of because we don't live in a Middle Eastern peasant village context. So this is totally shocking because this is the younger son. Okay? So one thing, if you're one of the sons of a father like this, you don't ask for your inheritance because when does the inheritance come to you? When your father dies. So guess what he's saying here? I wish you were dead. That's how the son is treating his father. Give me the share of property that's coming to me. It can't come fast enough. It's dishonorable. This is shameful. We should be shocked. And then it's even more shocking that the father doesn't just slap or beat the son. He complies. And he divided his property between them. So the Pharisees are listening to this, and they're upset that Jesus is eating with, you know, tax collectors and sinners, all these bad people, the riffraff. And Jesus is telling this parable in response to that. Verse 13, keep that in mind. So not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So he had to liquidate. I mean, it's not like this was, you know, hey, let me just Venmo this to you real quick, and then you can just go. I mean, most of the the family means would be wrapped up in animals and property. So you can imagine this was like a village kind of sell-off. He probably did it quick. And so the shame just trickles through. This shameful kind of departure trickles through the whole village. He's burning bridges left and right. He doesn't care. This is his community. This is his family. This should be his everything. But instead, he's just despising it all. And when he had spent everything off in this far country, reckless living, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed (gasps) pigs. 
okay? This is, Jesus came as a Jew to his own people. How do the Jews feel about pigs? Unclean, more shame. Like, this is the lowest you can possibly get. His sin leads him to the pigsty. In fact, his sin actually leads him to almost become like a pig. Anybody? Anybody been there? So he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. He, he's become almost like a pig. That's what sin does to us. And the shame is just like off the charts here. And no one gave him anything. All the bridges are burned. But he comes to his senses. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. So this is a huge change. He said, I wish you were dead. I just want to get away from this. And now he's saying, I'm wretched, not worthy. My father is good. It's a lot different. He had come to his senses. He came to himself. So how's the father going to respond to this? Who's been shamed publicly, like to such an ugly, I mean, this is an insolent son. Is he going to be aloof? Is he going to be cold? Is he going to be standoffish? Is he going to be cynical, bitter, vindictive? Like, how's this father going to react to all this? And ultimately, Jesus is reflecting his own character, the character of his father in this parable. Imagine what this son is heading back into. Not just, how's my father going to react, but I'm going to be walking into the village and you're going to have the tisk tisks and, you know, the insults and the you know, stuff that gets heaped on him that he deserves, maybe. But look what happens. While he was still a long way off, his father was, must have been keeping an eye out. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So, again, we, we are a long way from this context as far as the cultural distance. This man was an older, dignified kind of village leader. Those guys didn't run. You did not run. They wore robes back then, right? So if you run, you expose your legs. It's shameful. You expose your nakedness. That's why you had to gird up your loins, you know, and do that whole thing like a, like a soldier if you were going to actually do something active. So men just didn't show their legs. It was part of their dignity, their honor. That's why their robes touched the ground. So listen to this. Think about what's happening here. Why does the father run? He does it out of love and compassion for his son, but he runs to his son because he wants to get to his son before his son gets to the village or the village to his son. 
he runs and embraces the shame of running to his son so that the shame won't be heaped on his son. He takes the shame for his son. Do you see where this is going? Like, how beautiful is this? He wants to protect his son from shame, so he takes it on himself. He wants to honor this insolent, rebellious son with compassion and love and forgiveness. So this is, this is all a setup. This is all a pointer for where the gospel of Luke is headed, where Jesus is headed. He is going to, for the joy set before him, endure the cross, despising the shame, so that anybody who trusts in him, every, anyone who comes home, all of us are off in a far country away from God, right? In our sin, you come home, he wants to honor us and with his grace and adopt us into his family and pour out his love on us. Isn't that good? This is good news. So the son said to him, I mean, you can imagine, he came out of a pigsty. Nobody gave him anything. So probably didn't take a shower. Probably stunk. Clothes in tatters. He's got nothing. And the father doesn't like, you know, go get cleaned up. I can't believe what you did. Go shave, get yourself cleaned up, then maybe I'll talk to you. I don't know. Like he's not vindictive. You would expect him to scorn his, his son, shame him, shun him. That's not what happens here. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He doesn't say, go, go take a bath and then maybe we'll talk about it. Yeah, yeah, you're not worthy to be called my son. We'll see if I ever do. Instead, this father says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. I want to honor this shameful son who's returned. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Put shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Listen, this is the joy of the father here. Of course, when the son, when this kind of sunk in finally, that he realized how compassionate and merciful and gracious his father was, I'm sure it became his joy. But this is actually the joy of the father that's planning this party. It's only the son's joy because it's the father's joy. So again, <laughs> the joy of the gospel, the celebration of the gospel is first the joy of God. And then it's ours by his grace. But there's not just one lost son in this story. There's two. So let's keep going here. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, 
But he answered his father, look. And that's abrupt. Like, this is disrespectful and dishonorable. There's shame all over the place. Look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, doesn't even call him his brother, when this son of yours came who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. So the other son, what he did initially was totally shameful, disrespectful, dishonorable. This is now shameful, dishonorable, disrespectful. This son should have come into the party. His father could have disciplined him for not coming into the party. And instead, he graciously, mercifully goes out to entreat him. And then the son gives him lip, this attitude, look. He could have said, you self-righteous, selfish, ungrateful, like, how dare you shame me publicly? How dare you not come into this party? He could have done all of that. And instead, more mercy and compassion. He said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. There's a guy named Kenneth Bailey that has um, a book that really helps you get into the first century context of this parable, and he has a little... um, almost like a play that he's written at the end. And here's one little section of it. He names the older brother Adam, and um, there's the father. So Adam says this, He's not my brother, he's a dirty beggar. Now I must share my portion with a beggar. Maybe if I ran away and spent the family's money on prostitutes, then you would love me. The father says, Still, I would love you. Adam, I understand that you want to refuse the company of sinners. Indeed, I do. But son, if I do that, I will have to avoid you. So have you ever noticed that this story doesn't really have an ending? It kind of just leaves it hanging? Why? It's because at this point, Jesus was still being merciful and entreating the Pharisees. So there are prostitutes and sinners coming in and like being attracted to Jesus like like a magnet. And then there's all these religious folks looking down their nose and judging him and criticizing him. And he's even being merciful to them. But you know what? The Pharisees eventually did write the end of this parable, write the end of this parable in a few months. The older son, enraged at the father, picked up a piece of wood and beat him to death, in a sense. You are evil, you're unrighteous, your blood be on me. I will uphold justice and honor. You see, that's what the Pharisees, they didn't like Jesus. This scandalous mercy and grace and compassion, that's not just. I'll restore honor. See, grace can be infuriating. Remember Jonah? So think about the irony. This older son could have been beaten for his self-righteous refusal to enter the celebration, but instead he 
beat the merciful Father. Jesus is representing the character of the Father, and he did it thinking it was righteous. So here's the thing. This news is so good because God's grace extends to everybody. God has love for the playboys and girls who break the rules in selfish, shameful ways, and he has love for Pharisees who keep the rules in self-righteous, shameful ways. And he came to save both, which is good news for people like us because we probably tend, we're inclined to, you know, think we're better than other people and fall off the horse in the pharisaical side, or, you know, we're the rule breakers, and sometimes we think we're beyond the grace of God, or we just kind of beat ourselves up forever and think we can't be rescued. No, there's good news for all kinds of people, and actually, sometimes we toggle between the the two of them, right? We can be self-righteous and scandalous in our sin. So, but this parable calls for response. It brings you to this fork in the road. If you're a younger brother, if you're in the far country, it's like this wake-up call, smelling salts in the pigsty. Like, what am I doing? I can come home, and I'll be received. Not because of who I am, but because of the compassion of the Father. So Jesus went all the way to the cross and endured that shame for you so that you could be welcomed home and given mercy and grace and compassion and honor and a place and adoption, identity, security, a future, a hope, everything. You don't have to get cleaned up to take a bath. None of us can earn or merit his forgiveness and love. We just need to own our sin and come home. Return, repent, and come home. So in short, come home if you're in that younger brother boat. If you're more like the older brother, this is a call to come in. None of us is better than any other. If you think that your rightness with God is based on your performance and you look down on others, then You don't need Jesus to die for you. No, this grace is for everyone, whether it's sinning by breaking the rules or sinning by keeping the rules. And so come in and celebrate because, listen, we are all lost apart from the grace of Jesus, and we can all be found by the grace of Jesus. So there's just joy all over this story because Our God is the fountain of joy. So the joy of the Father, the finder, is here. There's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, right? There's the joy of the Son when he's found. I mean, do you remember when you were a lost sheep? Do you remember? Like, I think sometimes even to, like, rekindle the joy of our salvation, we need to stop and think, man, where was I? And what did God do to bring me home, to bring me back? I mean, it's so easy to just... You know, have some things happen and you're, you're complaining and negative and it's just kind of like self-feeding kind of spiral and it's like, whoa, I, I am incredibly blessed. I'm not going to hell anymore. <sighs> like, 
I deserve to be totally rejected. What an insolent son or daughter I was, just shaking my fist in God's loving, merciful, kind face. And instead, he has blessed me and repeatedly just welcomed me back. He gave everything. He gave his son. So, aren't you glad to be safely in the care of the shepherd? Aren't you glad to be in the family of this father? Have his love and compassion be yours. So, the joy of the gospel, joyful celebration. Um, I'm just going to have, this is, this is a short song, but I think it illustrates, and again, I think this is a way we can taste and see that the Lord is good and just savor the sweetness of the gospel. Um, there's a song called The Prodigal, and there's a little animation video, and I got permission this week to show this, so um, it's kind of like a visual illustration here, and then we'll finish um, with the last few points. They're going to be shorter, so don't worry. So go ahead, Chad, if you want to show that video. You held out your arms, I walked away Insolent, I spurned your face Squandering the gifts you gave to me And holding close forbidden things Destitute 
Don't you love the gospel? Isn't that great? So, the joy of the gospel. We need to be reminded of it. We need to soak in it day after day, week after week. If we forget that, we're never going to want to share anything with anybody. But watch something like that. Don't you want to just go share it with somebody? Don't you want to just go share this good news with somebody? So, point number three, no greater joy. So there is, in this passage, clearly great joy in heaven when one sinner repents. There's a party in heaven. So the Apostle John knew that joy, and he says in his third letter in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So some of you know this firsthand, whether it's with your, your own children or with someone that's become like a spiritual child, okay? You've led them to faith in Christ. I mean, what is better than that? To see someone's life transformed forever. God used you in that way. Like, there's no greater joy than to know that joy. So we've been talking for a while about and praying for one and one, right? So this is mission, third of the three values. We've been talking about one and one. God, use each and every one of us to lead one person to Jesus this year. One person, one year. How wonderful would that be? Anybody want that to happen around here? So I, I love this little section. I think of it, you know, periodically. Um, there's a biographical thing on a guy named David Brainerd who only lived to be 29 years old. Um, and, you know, he struggled in a lot of different ways, but he ended up being a missionary to some Indians. Um, he lived a couple hundred years ago, and maybe a couple hundred of them came to Christ through his witness. So I love what's said about him in this uh, biographical sketch. This is just kind of a summary at the end. Who can describe the value of one soul transferred from the kingdom of darkness and from the weeping and gnashing of teeth to the kingdom of God's dear Son. If we live 29 years or if we live 99 years, would not any hardships be worth the saving of one person from the eternal torments of hell for the everlasting enjoyment of the glory of God? So, Bethel family, are you praying daily? Are you praying for one and one to happen? Don't you want to get in on that? Like, who's in your handful of folks that you're praying for regularly? And if you don't have a handful of folks, then ask God, like, who around me? Open my eyes to see the people I ought to be praying, with that, praying for that I interact with regularly. Help me to get to know my neighbors. Help me to be more, you know, proactive and just reaching out to folks at work or whatever. And let's just not rest until God answers that prayer. So, in order to share Jesus faithfully when those opportunities do arise, we need to be fluent in the gospel. We've talked about fluency and saturation the first two weeks. And let me just close with those two thoughts applied to mission as well. Okay? So you can just write these texts down and ponder their application in your life. We're going to hit them really quick. So first, fluency. We need to be conversant with the gospel. We need to know the gospel if we're going to share the gospel, right? It's obvious. So two passages, and you could just listen and jot these down and look at them later. Colossians 4, 5, and 6. 
Paul writes to the church in Colossae, he says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You see? You need to be fluent so that you can answer each person. So that's key if we're going to be faithful in reaching out to those who don't know Jesus. And then 1 Peter 3.15 says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So do you have a clear answer for the reason, for the hope that's within you? I mean, especially if God answers those prayers, you know, praying earlier, like, is your workplace just filled with complaining and negativity? Anybody? Oh, maybe not. Okay. Um, okay, thank you. I see that hand. Um, so what if we, as God's people, Jesus' followers, were just totally different? And we were grateful and buoyant and joyful by God's grace. Do you think that maybe people might like, take notice and say, hey, there's something different about you? And then you have an open door to share. So fluency is important. So we're ready when those opportunities come. We don't want to be stingy with the gospel in Wilmington, right? We want our city to be saturated with the gospel. So final point, fluency and saturation. Jesus said that we're salt and light. Salt permeates a thing and flavors it and seasons it and keeps it from decay. Light permeates a space, dispelling the darkness wherever it shines. And we're supposed to be salt and light, like Jesus said. So don't you want to see Wilmington saturated with the gospel, with the grace of God? Well, it's going to happen through us. And it's going to happen, most likely, one person at a time. So maybe just start by praying for an opportunity to share Luke 15 with somebody this week. How about that for application? I remember one time I was studying this. I was just so kind of jazzed by it. Like, wow, this is awesome. Walked into this coffee shop. It was really early in the morning. There's nobody else there. And I'm like, okay, you guys are going to think I'm really weird. But I got to tell you this story. And I just told them Luke 15. And they kind of looked at me and listened. They were nice. I don't know. But... I just couldn't help myself. This is such good news. So maybe God will give you an opportunity. Maybe it's not so, you know, cold turkey and random as a coffee shop, but um, your neighbor or a family member or whatever to share Luke 15 and talk about the character of God and his grace, his prodigal-like heart. So we're going to saturate this city one person at a time. One by one, we can and will saturate our city. So remember the parable of the seeking shepherd, the seeking woman, the, the father who was looking and waiting. Jesus, a little bit later in Luke, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. For the joy set before him, he did it all to bring us safely home to him. And Jesus also said, as the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you. So for the joy set before us, Let's seek and save the lost. And may the joy of the Lord be our strength as we do. Let's close in prayer, and then we're going to sing a closing song.
Oh God, the gospel is such good news. Your love is so great. We're not worthy to be called your sons and daughters, but because of your great love with which you loved us, you sent your son. And while we were still sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins, you gave us Jesus, and you've made us alive together with Christ and saved us by your grace. And I pray that we would not just become dull to the goodness of the good news. Continue to give us fresh gratitude and joy and, and just humble awe at how kind you have been and how kind you are. And I pray that we would share that good news with those that you've placed in our life. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.